You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. So if it's true, why wouldn't Felix repent and be saved? If it's true, why wouldn't Festus repent and be saved? If it's true, why wouldn't Agrippa and Bernice repent and be saved? If it's true, why wouldn't Nero repent and be saved? That's the answer. Say, it went right over my head, Pastor. Because there's a requirement in receiving Christ, and that's to repent. Jesus did everything that he could to make salvation accessible to everyone. And it is, anyone, no matter who they are, whether the poorest of the poor or the wealthiest on earth, anyone can repent and call on the name of Jesus to be saved. Unfortunately, all too often people allow pride to stand in their way. They stumble over the idea of repentance. Pastor Danny says receiving Christ comes with a requirement of repentance, and that keeps people from accepting the truth. Don't let that keep you from Christ today. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Acts chapter 25 with today's edition of The Living Word. as Saul of Tarsus would threaten these followers of Christ and, and say, okay, you recant your faith in Christ and maybe we'll have leniency. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord, or who are you, sir? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached, and listen to what he preached, that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That's why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I love that part because what Paul's saying is, I'm saying this to everybody listening, not just to the king and Bernice, not just to Festus, to the servant that no doubt led him in by his chains. 
everybody. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul. That's what he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Which tells us Festus knew about Paul's educational background. He had studied under the number one Jewish teacher of the day, Gamaliel. You're insane. Reminder, verse last week, the days of punishment are coming, the days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so great and your hostility, sins so many and hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool, inspired person, a maniac. The evangelist Charles Finney said, if you have much of the spirit of God, it is not unlikely you will be thought deranged by many. But we're in good company. You don't need to turn to the scripture. Mark chapter three tells us that Jesus was in a house with his disciples and the crowd gathered and their crowd was pushing in on them so much that they could not even eat. And when his family heard about this in the context of all that's happening, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, here's what the Bible says, he's out of his mind. And that's what the world will often think of us. Paul responds to Festus's interruption. Verse 25, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. In other words, what I'm saying is open for analysis and verification. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. And then I love this next verse. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And before the king can respond, he says, I know you do. I know you do. And then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Now you heard the tone which I said that, but I'm reading it and I put that tone there. I don't know what tone Agrippa said it in. Makes it more of a challenge when I go back to the old King James Version. Here's the old King James Version of that verse, Agrippa's response. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Is that what he was saying? I'm close. New Living Translation, though, says, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Paul replied, verse 29, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul's saying, I don't wish this on any of you, but I want you to be saved like I'm saved. I want you to be forgiven like I'm forgiven. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. And after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man's not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Why did he appeal to Caesar? Because he had a right to, yeah, but more than that. Paul knew before that they were planning to kill him. He knew that. But he also knew what the Lord had said to him back in chapter 23, verse 11. Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And he knows appealing to Caesar, that's where he's headed, to testify for Christ before Nero himself. There are three things that I want to point out before we are done. Because you, you just have to wonder, with such a powerful 
witness and testimony before them. Why would Festus not repent? Why would Felix not repent? Why would Agrippa and Bernice? Why? Because first of all, you have, first of all, you have a very radical example and testimony and witness before them, Paul the Apostle. And Festus sort of really listened up to what he said. I mean, he really paid attention. Because what Paul said is, Festus, there was a time my attitude toward Jesus of Nazareth and the message uh, that was proclaimed from, by his followers, I was just as opposed to it as you are. And I thought they were just as nutty as you think I am. So much so that I persecuted them, tried to get them to blaspheme, approved of their death. I was so obsessed with the ludicrous thought that Jesus of Nazareth is really the Messiah and that he died and rose again. I know he died, but no way he rose again. I was one just like you in my attitude. And this is some mystery here, but here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, who do not believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news, the gospel. Saul of Tarsus was blinded. You could have taken him to Isaiah 53. You could have taken him to prophecies about Jesus, and he would have didn't mean anything. He couldn't see it. Why? He's blinded. Why? Because he refused to believe. Despite the evidence, he refused to believe. And if he refused to believe based on the initial evidence that God gives, then your blindness may deepen. John's Gospel, chapter 12, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe. That's a choice. A couple of verses later, for this reason, they could not believe. But Paul met Jesus personally, and that changed everything. Fascinating verse in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, Jesus again appears to his disciples. And remember, they also, even though they're saved, and they're followers of Jesus, and they believe in him, they never saw the cross. Even though he told them repeatedly what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He's going to die, three days later he's going to rise again. They never, they, never, they never saw it. They were blind to it. And in Luke 24, when he appears to them, verses 45 to 47, here's what it says. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Specific scriptures of all that was prophesied about him. I don't totally understand it, but, but listen, I don't totally, it's a mystery here. Uh, someone years ago said, uh, for some people, you know, they're saying, well, God, you show me and I'll believe. And God's sometimes saying to those same people, you believe and I'll show you. And if you reject the initial evidence, maybe the blindness gets deeper. But if you accept the initial evidence, then it begins to open your mind and you see more. Then there's the reasonableness Paul said, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Not only true, but it's reasonable. You can look at the evidence and go, you know, that, that's it. That makes sense. Usually when I teach on the next points, I do it in more detail. My point here is just to give a quick summary. The evidence for the resurrection. Some people say Jesus never really died. Yes, he did. And we have historical witness to prove it. John chapter 19, the Jews come to Pilate and they say that deceiver said, you know, he'll raise the temple up in three days. Now they accused him of talking about the earthly physical temple. And now you realize they knew what he was talking about. He was talking about his body. They said, he, he said in three days, 
He'll raise it up. And so he's, they're thinking if the disciples come and steal the body and say he's risen, you know, or whatever. The, he said the second deception will be worse than the first. And so in response to their complaint, Pilate then commands his military officers. He says, you go and make the tomb as secure. Wait a minute, I'm going ahead of myself. They come to break the legs of the thief on the right, break the legs of the thief on the left, and they didn't, brought, didn't break Jesus' legs, which also fulfilled a prophecy in the Psalms that none of his legs would, none of his bones would be broken. Why didn't they break his legs? Because he's already dead. But they have to confirm this. They have to confirm because they go back to their commander-in-chief, and he's not really dead. They're in big trouble. And so a soldier takes his spear, and he thrusts it into Jesus' side, and out comes blood and water. And we know that is a medical confirmation he's dead. He's dead. Now, where I was going ahead of time, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. And so the soldiers went, they put some mud-like substance around the, the stone of the tomb. They put Silas, Pilate's authoritative signet ring around it. So if you mess with it, you're in big trouble. And then they posted the guard, not just one Roman guard, at least 16 military elite personnel to be watching that tomb and guarding it 24-7. And then we know the tomb was empty. Not just from the disciples saying it was empty. No, we know from Roman authority the tomb was empty. Angel comes down from heaven. There's an earthquake. Rolls the stone away. You read the text. It says when the soldiers there saw the angels, and there was more than one, it says they were like dead men. They were trembling and they were like dead men. And then they see as the stone is rolled away, there's no body there. They rush to the Jewish chief priest and they tell him all the things that have happened and that the tomb is empty. And the Jewish chief priest give the soldiers a large sum of money. They bribed them and said, when somebody asks you what happened, tell them during the night we were asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. And we have eyewitness accounts. On one occasion, Jesus appeared to over 500 of his followers at one time. And then if the disciples stole the body, come on. You talk about radical transformation. Everybody that was a follower of Jesus Christ, including the apostle Paul, they knew it was true. And if it wasn't true, you're going to let your family suffer and in some cases even die and you're going to face death yourself? Come on. If it's not true, here's what Paul said. If it's not true, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Listen, if this stuff's not true, what are you doing in church? Go out, have fun, go out, enjoy life, have another drink, have another smoke, pop another pill, get another immoral relationship. Hey, if this stuff's not true, live it up, man. That's what he's saying. But it is true. It is true. It is true. Prophesied the place of his birth. Not just Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrata, because there was at least one other historical Bethlehem, northern part of Israel. Bethlehem Ephrata, near Jerusalem. The timing of the cross, I, can't, I can't, don't have time to elaborate that prophecy, fascinating prophecy. 483 years of human history after Cyrus issued the decree to rebuild the temple, let the Jews rebuild the temple. 483 years, and then the anointed one, that means Messiah, the Christ, that's what they all mean. The anointed one, Messiah, Christ, Messiah, will be cut off. That's the cross. It was prophesied. 
with specific timing and right on. Then there's a suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53 makes it very clear. Then you have the story of Abraham and Isaac. Father, the only son, one and only son, miracle son, miracle child. Takes him up on Mount Moriah, which just by coincidence is where Mount Calvary was. That's where Jesus died on the cross. He's to offer him as a sacrifice. Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God could raise the dead. It's the story of the death and the resurrection of the only one beloved of the Father. It's the story of Christ. Fascinating prophecy. What are you going to do with the handsome price you paid for me? 30 pieces of silver. You read it in Zechariah chapter 11. Throw it to the potter in the house of the Lord. How do you do both? Judas came and in remorse, not repentance, he took the 30 pieces of silver. He threw them back into the temple. Jewish leaders picked those 30 pieces of silver up. They said, we can't put it into the temple treasury. It's blood money. And so they bought the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Specific prophecy. Before a Roman cross ever conceived, it was prophesied in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. Two verses later, prophecy that the soldiers at the foot of the cross would gamble for Jesus' clothing. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. How can you have both? He died as a common criminal, should have been buried in a common criminal's grave. But a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate, asked permission for the body. Pilate gives him permission. Joseph, a rich man, takes Jesus' body and buries it in his own personal rich man's tomb. And then Psalm 1610, you will not let your holy one see decay. That's why he had to rise again the third day, because on the fourth day as the body lay in the ground, that's when the body begins to decay and deteriorate. It's true. So if it's true, why wouldn't Felix repent and be saved? If it's true, why wouldn't Festus repent and be saved? If it's true, why wouldn't Agrippa and Bernice repent and be saved? If it's true, why wouldn't Nero repent and be saved? That's the answer. Say, it went right over my head, Pastor. Because there's a requirement in receiving Christ, and that's to repent. You can't accept Paul's message. You can't accept the gospel. John the Baptist came and said, repent. He said that the religious people who came out produced fruit in keeping with repentance. That's Paul, what Paul said he preached. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate the repentance by their deeds. If Herod Antipas, in response to the witness of John the Baptist, it is not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. If he's going to repent, he's got to get out of that immoral relationship. And the reason he wasn't saved is because he wasn't willing. Felix, though he trembled with conviction at the word of God and the witness of Jesus Christ, refused to repent because that would mean he'd have to leave his pagan lifestyle, which we know he lived from last week's message. Festus, Festus, if he's going to really repent and be saved, in his world, he would look like a fool. He'd be considered as insane as he viewed Paul as insane. And he wasn't willing. 
Herod and Agrippa, or Herod and Bernice, Herod, Agrippa, and Bernice would have to give up their immoral and self-indulgent lifestyles. They'd have to stop living in a fantasy world and face the reality that one day they are going to die. And if they die without a savior, having gained the whole world, would not be worth it. Did you know we have a natural tendency toward evil and not good? Did you know that? I'm talking about Christians and non-Christians alike. This is the verdict. Light is coming to the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away and by their own evil desire enticed. God said to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Don't you long for the day. Why is evil right there with me? Because it dwells in the members of this body right here. I'm just like you. I'm just like you. Evil. Right there with me. Here's what I wrote and I'll close with it. You can raise your children in a godly environment, discipline them correctly, teach them the word of God, live a godly example before them, but still they have a sin nature and the only way they will win the victory over sin and rebellion is to say no to their own natural desires and repeatedly resist the enticement of the devil. Your husband and wife may for years live a godly life, but never forget they have a sin nature. And the only way they will win the victory over sin and rebellion is to say no to their own natural desires and repeatedly resist the enticement of the devil. Your mom or dad may live a godly life before you, but never forget they have a sin nature. And the only way they'll win the victory over sin and rebellion is to say no to their own natural desires, repeatedly resist the enticement of the devil. Your sister or brother, by blood or by faith in Christ, may for years live a godly life, but never forget they have a sin nature. And the only way they will win the victory over sin and rebellion is to say no to their own natural desires and repeatedly resist the enticement of the devil. It is not your environment. It is not your background. It is not your circumstance and there's nobody else you can blame. And I'm including myself in that. We're prone to sin. And the only way to have victory over sin is to repent, receive Christ, and then daily, daily resist the flesh and say no to my natural desire and yes to the spirit of God. And I want to tell you, I haven't always done that. There's something I've enjoyed and I felt I had the freedom in. And especially very recently, I've realized um, I've enjoyed it too much. I've enjoyed it too often. And I've recently repented. Because the end of sin is robbing you of everything God wants for you. That's the end of it. Now, I know I'm talking to some people and, and I know several situations in our church fellowship where people have given in to the flesh and they become mastered by it. They become mastered by it. Bible says you're, you're a slave to whatever's mastered you. Paul said, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but I will not be mastered by anything. I mean, you give in to something, you know, and then it becomes, you know, 
becomes a stronghold in your life. becomes a stronghold. We're so thankful to be able to share this time with you today on The Living Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Petersburg, Florida. We've been learning some historical things from the Book of Acts, a New Testament book that records the early church and how the disciples spread the gospel of Jesus to the world. What an incredible move of the Holy Spirit that we get to not only read about, but experience today. If you'd like to hear today's message again, or other messages like it from Pastor Danny, visit our website at ccfstpete.church. Look under the Media tab and click on Sermons. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to take a moment and ask you to partner with us in prayer here at The Living Word. Prayer is an incredibly powerful tool that you can use against the enemy, who doesn't play fair. Being in conversation with the Lord is an exercise that's extremely rewarding as you find yourself more and more in a relationship with God. As far as a specific prayer request, please pray that we'd always have it on the forefront of our minds to be teaching the Word and reaching the world. As you pray about this, we pray too that your heart is encouraged and growing in the Word through these teachings. Thanks for praying, and thanks for being a part of this ministry. Join us again next time to dive deeper into the Book of Acts right here on The Living Word.